It's New Year's Eve, 1985. Celebrations are taking place all across America as the nation bids farewell to the old year and welcomes in the new. Bright fireworks illuminate the night sky, music plays in every household, couples anticipate midnight kisses, and everyone waits excitedly to hear the clock strike 12. In a small trailer park home in the city of Burlington, North Carolina, the atmosphere is no different. 53-year-old Blanche Taylor Moore and her boyfriend, 50-year-old Raymond Reed, are partying the night away. The radio accompanies the couple's clumsy but enthusiastic dancing. The sweet smell of alcohol hangs in the air as the scent of home-cooked dinner wafts through. A slow, gentle song comes on, and Reed pulls Blanche close to him. He strokes her long, sleek, jet-black hair, his arms caressing her curves as she tilts back her dainty head and stares lovingly up at him. The pair rock slowly back and forth until the song fades, and Reed leans forward to kiss Blanche. After a few magical seconds, she pulls away, letting Reed's hands drop limply to his sides. Blanche smiles and laughs apologetically, explaining that they need to eat some of the food she spent hours preparing. Without a word of protest, drunk on admiration for his loving girlfriend, Reed takes a bowl of potato soup from Blanche's hands and spoons it into his mouth as he wanders over to the table. The music plays softly as the minutes to midnight tick by. It seems like nothing could ruin this happiness. But just as the countdown begins, their entire world is shattered. At the first stroke heralding the new year, Raymond Reed falls from his chair to the floor. His body convulses and his face turns a bright shade of purple. His hands clasp around his throat, as though he's trying but failing to pull in air. Blanche immediately leaps up from her own seat knocking over her glass, which lands on the floor with a smash. She screams in terror, tears streaming down her face. She has no idea what to do. Blanche tears across the small kitchen and rushes towards the telephone. With shaking, sweaty hands, she wrenches it from the hook, dials 911, and begs for an ambulance to come as quickly as they can. Behind her, Reed writhes in pain. By now, his clothes are soaked with sweat and a putrid smell of vomit lingers throughout the trailer. His face has a strange blue tint to it and he looks seconds away from death. But he's still breathing and his heart is still beating. For how much longer though? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Blanche Taylor Moore, a woman whose life was plagued by tragedies. It's about the identical deaths of three men and the one who survived when doctors swore he wouldn't. It's about a police investigation to find out who Blanche really was, her sensational criminal trial, and a chilling deathbed confession from beyond the grave, 
which cast doubts onto everything the police thought they knew. I'm Estefania Hageman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The sudden collapse and sickness of Raymond Reed on New Year's Day will hospitalize him for almost a year. His body becomes paralyzed as doctors struggle to diagnose his condition. As Reed fights for his life, a series of chilling questions arise surrounding his illness. Questions which will eventually spark a statewide police investigation. How did Reed, a healthy, active man, end up on his deathbed at just 50 years old. And what of his girlfriend, Blanche? Did she do enough to save him? Local gossip runs rife. Some suspect her, while others feel sorry for her. But everyone agrees on the sad truth that Blanche has been stalked by tragedy her entire life. Blanche is born in Brown Mill, North Carolina, 1933. To outsiders, she appears to have a quintessential rural American upbringing. She lives with her parents and six siblings in a large house, surrounded by beautiful, wild countryside. To the south of their home is Burlington, an exciting up-and-coming metropolis. To the north are the magnificent Blue Ridge Mountains, Meanwhile, right on their doorstep, sparkling rivers and streams meander through. With acres of land to get lost in and six siblings to play with, Blanche seems to have a storybook childhood. However, appearances can be deceiving. As it turns out, all is not well in Blanche's family home. Her father, Parker Kaiser, is a respected Baptist preacher, but ironically, He rarely listens to the lessons of the Bible. He's a drunk, a womanizer, and a gambler. Kaiser spends most nights gambling the family's money away in seedy backstreet bars. He picks up young women wherever he can, often flaunting his infidelity in front of his wife and children. 
In between sermons, he drinks himself into a stupor before staggering back out in front of his congregation. But worse than all of this, Kaiser is abusive to his children. He knows that his daughters, Blanche in particular, are growing up to be exceptionally beautiful young girls. They turn the heads of everyone in town, and people jokingly warn Kaiser how they'll break all the boys' hearts. For Kaiser, though, his daughter's beauty is not a source of pride. It's an opportunity to pay off his debts. According to Blanche, Kaiser forces his daughters into sex work, inviting men to sleep with them in return for canceling his debts. Before she's even reached adolescence, Blanche is subjected to grotesque sexual abuse orchestrated by her own father. It's impossible to imagine the emotional and psychological damage caused by this traumatic childhood. But just how will these conflicted feelings play out? As Blanche leaves home and makes her own way in the world, will she ever overcome the suffering of her youth? In 1952, aged 19, Blanche meets former soldier, 24-year-old James Napoleon Taylor. Like Blanche, Taylor is from a large family and grew up in another of Burlington's rural districts. He's recently returned from conflict in Korea. Blanche and Taylor are instantly attracted to one another. She's impressed by his glittering military record and worldly experience. He, like so many others, is enticed by her beauty and charm. The two marry within months, and in 1953, just one year later, Blanche gives birth to their first child, a daughter who they call Vanessa. It's during this year that Blanche gets her first job as a cashier in a local Kroger store. She throws herself into her work, impressing both colleagues and customers, and enjoying the sense of purpose the job gives her. For now, Everything seems perfect. However, the time will come when the simple, happy world of Blanche and Taylor begins to crumble. In 1959, Blanche gives birth to the couple's second child, another daughter who they name Cindy. But Cindy is born into a very different family than her older sister six years earlier. Over time, it's become clear that James Taylor is cut from the same cloth as Blanche's alcoholic father. He spends his nights drinking and gambling, frittering every cent of the family's savings away. He often disappears for days, no doubt hiding from the various men to whom he owes money. In retaliation for her husband's reckless behavior, Blanche flirts relentlessly with both colleagues and customers at work. Soon, rumors begin to spread about the state of their marriage. They'll continue on this downward spiral for the better part of a decade, growing further and further apart. However, for Blanche and Taylor, unhappy as they are, divorce is not an option. Both were raised in strictly religious households and believe wholeheartedly in the vows they made before God, promising to be together till death do us part. Tragically, it seems as though death may be their only way out. It's October 2nd, 1973. 
Over two decades have passed since Blanche and James Taylor married. Their animosity towards each other hasn't faded over the years. They've stayed together for the sake of their family, but tension is always high in their house. Tonight, however, a different kind of atmosphere fills their home. One of raw panic and dread. In the middle of their living room, 45-year-old James Taylor lies sprawled out on a thin, threadbare rug. His body is completely motionless, his vital signs faint. His brother and sister have rushed over. Blanche called them just a few minutes ago. Now, the two of them run around in a terrified frenzy, doing everything they can to revive their brother. They pour water on Taylor's swollen face, slap his skin, shout his name, even attempt to pump his heart. But nothing is working. Taylor doesn't wake up. However, not everyone in the room is panicking. 40-year-old Blanche sits quietly on the sofa, holding the hands of her two beloved daughters, 20-year-old Vanessa and 14-year-old Cindy, as they cry softly onto their mother's shoulders. But while Vanessa and Cindy are visibly heartbroken, Blanche remains impassive, detached, and distinctly dry-eyed. She sits in silence, staring in morbid fascination at the action unfolding before her. Considering her husband's dangerous condition, it's not clear why Blanche doesn't call the emergency services. Perhaps she's in shock, or perhaps after so many miserable years, she's simply not inclined to make the call that might save his life and extend their suffering. It's possible that she'd rather let nature take its course. Hours later, as the first rays of pale morning sun creep into Blanche's home, James Taylor's heart stops beating. Doctors who were finally called shortly before dawn tragically arrived too late to save him. Now, they examine his lifeless body. But when they get a closer look, there's a collective gasp of horror. It's like nothing they've seen before. His face, still soaked in sweat, has turned a slight blue hue, like bruising, and his skin is covered in raw red blisters. His dark hair has a strange orange tint to it, and in places, large clumps have fallen out. His body is bloated and disfigured. It looks as though air has been pumped beneath his skin, and his clothes are soaked in his own vomit. Despite the strange variety of symptoms, in the end, they rule that James Taylor died of a heart attack. But as the months pass, rumors start to follow Blanche. Rumors which question Taylor's strange and sudden death. Rumors will later christen Blanche with a new, cruel name. The Black Widow. Following her husband's premature death in 1973, 40-year-old Blanche is quick to move on. And given how unhappy their 20-plus years of marriage had been, who could blame her? Her glamorous movie star looks have only blossomed with age, and she has little difficulty finding herself a new beau. Blanche's new partner is a 38-year-old divorcee named Raymond Reed. 
Reed is a respected, ambitious individual and a father to two young children. He also happens to be Blanche's boss at the Kroger store. Perhaps because of their close working relationship, whispers soon arise. Speculation spreads about when exactly their relationship began. Some suggest they were having an affair in the months leading up to Taylor's death. Some even suspect it may have been the cause of Reed's early death, one way or another. Blanche is quick to shrug off the gossip. She tells everyone that she's free to date whoever she likes. Soon, she sells her house and moves into a trailer with Raymond Reed, taking with her her two daughters as they become a new, happy family. As the months turn into years, the couple's love for each other only seems to deepen. There's talk of marriage, but Blanche and Reed seem to prefer to keep things casual. Again, given her experiences, it's hardly surprising. However, their fairy tale romance comes to an abrupt end on New Year's Eve, 1985, when Reed collapses and is rushed to the hospital. Doctors manage to stabilize him, but are confused by the sudden onset of strange symptoms and struggle to diagnose his condition. At first, they believe it may be related to Guillain-Barre syndrome, an autoimmune disorder which targets the body's nervous system. However, despite treatment, Reed struggles to recover. In fact, over the following year, he gets progressively worse. Hi, listeners. Estefania here. We hope you enjoy this trailer for Noiser's new show, Detectives Don't Sleep. Listen wherever you get your podcasts with new episodes airing every Tuesday. What makes a great detective? If you arrived at a crime scene, would you have what it takes to crack the case wide open? Would you spot the vital clue that everyone else has missed? Could you unravel the suspect's perfect alibi? And could you confront a murderer? Introducing Detectives Don't Sleep, the new whodunit podcast from Noiser. Each week, we'll take you beyond the police tape to shadow the real detectives who worked history's most intriguing cases. You'll be right there, solving a murder on the beaches of the Bahamas, busting neo-Nazi art dealers in the back streets of Europe, and unmasking con men in Beverly Hills. These detectives, they all have one thing in common. They can never truly rest until they've closed the case. Listen to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. 
R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. It's October 1st, 1986. 53-year-old Blanche sits inside a small room in the Winston-Salem Baptist Hospital. Outside, she admires the vibrant colors of fall, the bright orange and red leaves, the pale yellow rays of the cold sun. But inside, the walls are gray and the mood is somber. Raymond Reed, Blanche's lover of 13 years, lies dying. Reed has spent the last 10 months shuffling between various hospitals in North Carolina. Doctors all over the state are at a loss at what's causing Reed's debilitating illness. The 50-year-old is suffering from a collection of painful symptoms. Severe swelling in his legs, blistered skin, rashes all over his body, nausea and dehydration, difficulty breathing, and most recently, paralysis in his hands and feet. As he struggles through each day, his only joy has been Blanche. The doctors and nurses can't help but feel moved by the love she shows her partner. How she visits so regularly, bringing Reed home-cooked meals and freshly baked cakes, even insisting on feeding him herself. Today, on this mild October afternoon, Blanche has brought a banana pudding for Reed. Blanche leans forward and scrapes back Reed's thinning dark hair. Lifting his head from the mountain of pillows, she spoons the pudding into his mouth. It's a heartbreaking moment between two lovers. As Blanche helps Reed swallow a mouthful of banana pudding, it's clear to both of them that he's not getting any better. It's a reality they've had to accept. In fact, just days ago, They had a lawyer come to the hospital and draw up a new will. If the unthinkable happens and Reed doesn't make it, Blanche will be provided for. She and his two kids will each inherit a third of his estate, $30,000, over $80,000 in today's money. After helping him finish the pudding, Blanche scoops up the container, kisses Reed on his sweaty forehead, and leaves. But just minutes after Blanche's departure, Raymond Reed's body erupts in pain. He rolls onto his side, clutching at his stomach and begins to vomit uncontrollably. The nurse rushes in. With tears streaming down his blistered face, Reed shouts, Please help me or I'm going to die. Just one week later, On October 7th, 1986, Raymond Reed dies in the ICU. He's just 50 years old. Perplexed by his deadly and unidentifiable condition, doctors are keen to perform an autopsy. They hope that by cutting him open, they'll finally understand what killed him. However, when surgeons suggest this idea to Blanche, she becomes visibly distraught. Blanche drops to the floor of the doctor's office, spilling the contents of her purse as she begs them not to proceed with the autopsy. Tears stream down her pale face and her voice becomes thick with sobs. Wringing her hands in evident despair, she pleads with the doctors. We cannot have an autopsy. 
He has been through too much. He wouldn't want to be cut on like this. We just, we, we cannot have one. The doctors reluctantly agreed not to go ahead with the autopsy. Instead, they attribute Reed's death to a disease they initially thought he might have, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Two weeks have passed since the tragic death of 50-year-old Raymond Reed. Outside of a small church in Burlington, a modest crowd gathers. Dressed all in black, their dark mood is reflected in the cold winter's day. At the front of the group stands Blanche, a widow once more. Grief is painted across her pale face. Her makeup is streaked with tears, and her eyes are glassy. But Blanche, it seems, is not alone in her suffering. As Reed's coffin is lowered into the ground, Blanche leans her head against a man's shoulders. In response, he affectionately kisses her forehead and strokes her long black hair. The man's name is Dwight Moore. He's the pastor at Blanche's local church, a man she's come to rely on of late. But as he offers his hand to comfort her, prying eyes can't help but take notice. In the days following Reed's funeral, rumors spread about Blanche and Dwight. Many saw the way they were together, how intimate they seemed to be. Are they romantically involved? If so, how long has it been going on for? Did it begin during Reed's illness? Were the tears she shed for her husband real? Well, at least some questions are answered three years later in April 1989, when Blanche and Dwight get married. By now, those who cast aspersions on Blanche's fidelity have lost interest, leaving the couple to start a new life together. In fact, to any outside onlooker, they look like a match made in heaven. Blanche, once a preacher's daughter, is now a preacher's wife. She's well-suited to the role and embraces it with passion, attending each of her husband's sermons and dedicating herself to the religious community. She seems truly happy with Dwight Moore. After years of terrible tragedy, has she finally found her happily ever after? It appears not. The date is now April 26, 1989. Blanche and Dwight Moore are traveling on a boat to North Carolina from New Jersey, where they've just spent a relaxing honeymoon. They listen to the seagulls cry above them, watch the turquoise waves sparkle against the ship's hull, and feel the sun's rays warm up their skin. Blanche squeezes Dwight's hand before announcing that she's going to get them some food before they approach the final port. When she wanders back just a few minutes later, she's carrying a drink for herself and a chicken sandwich for Dwight. She hands him the sandwich, assuring him that it's just how he likes it. But as soon as Dwight takes a few bites, he falls to the ground. The half-eaten sandwich falls overboard, where seagulls circle greedily to finish it off. The thud of Dwight's body echoes around the ship, and soon a crowd of spectators surround him. Dwight is rolling on the floor, clutching his stomach and wordlessly crying. 
His face is rapidly turning purple as he gulps for air. The worried crowd are trying all they can to help him, but it's clear that something is very wrong. He needs to get to a hospital, fast. When Dwight Moore finally reaches the North Carolina Memorial Hospital later that afternoon, doctors are not optimistic. They hook him up to a ventilator and pump his body full of fluids. But the odds are against him. His liver, kidneys, and heart are all beginning to fail. Worst of all, doctors cannot understand why. Did Dwight pick up a nasty virus while on his honeymoon? Perhaps he suffers from some undiagnosed condition. Unsure how to treat him, they take blood samples and keep him under constant observation. This means that no visitors are allowed to see him, not even his wife Blanche, much to her distress. Doctors allow just one person to enter Dwight's room, a priest who performs his last rites. Things aren't looking good. Now, all they can do is wait. Miraculously, Dwight Moore survives the first night in hospital, then the next, and the one after that. The days continue to pass, and to the relief of doctors and Blanche, Dwight gets stronger. His breathing becomes easy, his heart rate settles down, and the deathly symptoms that tormented him gradually fade away. As a precaution, though, visitors are still barred from seeing him. Blanche is repeatedly sent away from the hospital, forced to rely on calls from medical staff to update her on her husband's condition. Although doctors are able to tell Blanche that Dwight is recovering, they cannot explain why. They're left mystified about the 57-year-old man's miracle recovery. They believe the blood tests might have the answers they're looking for. Perhaps Dwight was exposed to a dangerous chemical while traveling, or that a virus found its way into his bloodstream. But what doctors are about to find on the toxicology report will chill them to their cores. Dwight Moore's blood tests confirm that he was not suffering from a nasty virus, nor did he have an underlying health condition. Doctors discover that Dwight's blood had over 7,000 milligrams of arsenic in it. To put this figure into perspective, the amount of arsenic considered lethal to a human is anything over 70 milligrams. Dwight had ingested roughly 100 times over this fatal limit. Doctors have never seen so much arsenic in a live human body and cannot work out how Dwight survived. Was it a stroke of good luck, divine intervention? However, while doctors are uncertain of the reasons for his survival, they do know one thing. There's no way a human can accidentally ingest this much arsenic meaning that someone poisoned Dwight, and they did so with the intention of killing him. Armed with this disturbing evidence, staff of the North Carolina Memorial Hospital alert police. It seems that there's a potential killer on the loose. After waiting a few days for Dwight's health to stabilize, Burlington police interview him in May, 1989. They're keen to find out if Dwight knows any reason why someone would want to poison him. 
At first, Dwight's unable to help. He's a simple preacher from a small town in rural North Carolina. Who would be out to get him? However, after a moment's consideration, a chilling realization floats to the front of his mind, one which he can't ignore. Dwight tells police that he might know who poisoned him. He explains that he's heard of two other men in Burlington who suffered identical symptoms to him, a young man called James Taylor, who died in 1973, and a 50-year-old man called Raymond Reed, who passed away four years ago. With a shudder, he admits that, aside from his illness, he shared only one thing with both men. A relationship with Blanche Taylor Moore. Based on their interview with Dwight Moore, Burlington police open an investigation into Blanche. They believe there's enough evidence to treat the deaths of her previous partners, James Taylor and Raymond Reed, as suspicious. But before they interview Blanche, they decide to do some digging themselves, literally. They gain permission to exhume the bodies of Taylor and Reed in June of that year in order to perform autopsies. Although Taylor's death was officially ruled as a heart attack and Reed's as complications relating to Guillain-Barr syndrome, police suspect autopsies will prove otherwise. They're not wrong. When coroners cut open the body of Taylor, they find highly elevated levels of arsenic. In fact, his levels are 60 times the lethal dosage. Reed's autopsy reveals similar results. His body also contains extremely high arsenic levels, and doctors conclude that the poison traveled as far as his brain. There can be no question about it. Both Taylor and Reed were also poisoned. But was Blanche responsible? Police certainly think so, but just to be sure, there's one other suspicious death on their books that might also implicate her. The death of a man in 1966. His name was Parker Kaiser, Blanche's father. In July, police exhume the body of Kaiser. Once again, they discover elevated levels of arsenic inside his body. The results of this final autopsy confirm their suspicions. Police arrest Blanche on July 18, 1989, on suspicion of involvement in the murder of Raymond Reed and James Taylor. She's also charged with using a deadly weapon, arsenic, to assault Dwight Moore. They don't press charges for the death of Parker Kaiser. As he was elderly when he died, it would be difficult to prove that the arsenic alone killed him. Blanche is seized from her daughter's house, where she's been staying for the last month. When they come to arrest her, Blanche is beside herself with distress. She doesn't struggle, but in her shock and confusion, she vehemently protests her innocence. Nonetheless, she's taken to the Forsyth County Jail, where she'll await her trial for murder. It's May 1990, Forsyth County Jail, North Carolina. 57-year-old Blanche Taylor Moore has spent the last year in prison, counting down the days until her murder trial. It's scheduled for October of this year. 
Blanche knows that in just five months, her fate will be decided one way or the other. It's during this excruciating waiting period that there's a shocking twist in her murder case. One morning in May, Blanche announces that she must meet with her lawyers immediately. She claims to have in her possession a startling new piece of evidence that can prove her innocence. When her lawyers arrive, Blanche hastily explains that she's received a letter from a man called Garvin Thomas, a fellow inmate who passed away just days ago. Lawyers discover that Thomas spent his life in and out of various North Carolina penitentiaries. As an unhoused person, being behind bars was at times perhaps preferable to spending long, cold nights on the streets. Blanche explains that they became acquainted in Forsyth County Jail. He was warm and friendly towards her, and the two soon became close. When Thomas was released in the spring, he was keen to continue his relationship with Blanche and visited her on several occasions. But it seems his friendship was less innocent than first appeared. Days ago, as he lay on his deathbed, Thomas wrote a letter confessing the true nature of his devotion to Blanche and the lengths he would go to be close to her. The lawyers take the letter from Blanche's hand. In front of them is Thomas's shocking deathbed confession. Garvin Thomas admits responsibility for the three crimes Blanche is being charged with, the murder of James Taylor and Raymond Reed, and the poisoning of Dwight Moore. Thomas claims that their blood is on his hands and his hands only. He writes that he'd spent his whole life admiring Blanche from afar and had grown infatuated with her over the years. His obsessions soon spiraled into violence and Thomas did all he could to claim Blanche for himself, including committing murder. The letter is full of gory details of Thomas's methods. He states that he disguised himself as a chaplain to gain access to Reed's hospital room and fed him Coca-Cola laced with arsenic while injecting poison into his arms and legs. Compellingly, the dates he gives for these poisonings align perfectly with hospital records of when Reed suffered relapses. He describes a similar pattern for James Taylor, claiming to have poisoned him with small doses of arsenic over a long period of time. All in all, it makes for an uncomfortable read. In amongst grisly details of murder are crude sexual fantasies about Blanche. Lawyers can't work out whether they're reading a murder confession or a love letter. Maybe it's both. Thomas concludes in his writing with a declaration of love to Blanche. I never meant to harm you. I love you too much, but the plan failed me. Just below these words, his signature is written neatly in small printed writing. The reveal of this deathbed confession letter at the 11th hour could change everything for Blanche. Suddenly, there's another suspect in the murder. A suspect who had a motive, who could confirm every detail, and apparently had the opportunity to carry out the crimes. In a case with no hard physical evidence and nothing to prove Blanche's guilt apart from her proximity to the victims, could this confession be enough to set her free? It will be for a jury to decide. 
Blanche's trial for the murder of Raymond Reed begins in October 1990 at the Superior Court of Forsyth County, North Carolina. Prosecuting lawyers have chosen not to charge her with the death of James Taylor or the attempted murder of Dwight Moore. The reason being that they don't want to put all their eggs in one basket. If they lose this case, they'll have the chance to prosecute Blanche again with the other two. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Blanche is pleading not guilty. Over the course of four weeks, in front of a packed courtroom, prosecutors build their case against Blanche. They use two main arguments to try to prove her guilt. First, they theorize how Blanche killed Reed. Using testimony from 53 witnesses, as well as Reed's medical records, they argue that following the initial poisoning at their home on New Year's Eve, 1985, Blanche brought food laced with arsenic into Reed's hospital room where he was recovering. The jury hears how the dying man lovingly, trustingly, allowed Blanche to feed it to him. The prosecution allege she poisoned Reed repeatedly over a long period of time until his blood became saturated with arsenic, forcing his heart to stop. Next, prosecutors move onto Garvin Thomas's deathbed confession letter. Aware that it could sway a jury, they must deal with it head on. In a surprising twist, they claim the letter does not prove Blanche's innocence. Rather, it proves her guilt. Prosecutors explain to the court that Thomas's letter is a hoax. They consult a handwriting expert who shows that the writing does not match Thomas's hand. In fact, it's very similar to Blanche's own writing style. Lawyers declare that Blanche is the true author of the letter. By turning the deathbed confession against her, the case for Blanche's guilt is sealed. If she wrote it, it means that she knew all those gory details of Reed's death, the methods used to poison him, and the dates on which the arsenic was given. It's a confession, all right, as good as if she'd admitted to the crime herself. In an attempt to counter the prosecution's arguments, Blanche's defense choose to keep their case simple. They focus on Blanche's reputation within the town of Burlington. Rather than a murderous, manipulative criminal, her lawyers present her as a model citizen, a dutiful employee despite a background of struggle, and being twice tragically widowed, she remained a loving, caring mother and is now the faithful wife of a respected local preacher. They implore the jury to feel sympathy for this woman, whose life has been marred by misery and heartbreak. On November 14th, 1990, as the late afternoon sun begins to set on Forsyth County, the 12 members of the jury file back into the courtroom. They've reached their verdict. Blanche Taylor Moore is found guilty of the murder of Raymond Reed. Unmoved by the sorry portrait presented by her lawyers, the jury recommends that she's put to death. At these damning words, the attention of the entire courtroom turns towards Blanche. The 57-year-old woman seems to crumple. Her head falls forward into her hands. Her body shrinks as though it's been deflated and tears stream down her pale face. The woman who failed to shed a tear when she watched her first husband die 
now sobs uncontrollably. As of 2023, Blanche Taylor Moore remains on death row. Due to ongoing controversies surrounding the death penalty, North Carolina hasn't executed a prisoner since 2006, and it now seems unlikely that Blanche will ever meet this fate. Aged 90, she's the oldest woman on North Carolina's death row. To this day, Blanche maintains her innocence in the murder of Raymond Reed. She continues to swear that she never took him food laced with arsenic or served him anything other than love. Her two daughters, Vanessa and Cindy, stand firmly by their mother. They too insist she's innocent and wholeheartedly believe Garvin Thomas's deathbed confession letter. But Blanche's innocence is only upheld by this small club of three. Most in North Carolina, including her ex-husband Dwight Moore, who filed for divorce in 1991, are convinced she's a serial killer. Many hold her responsible for far more than the single murder she was charged with. Most believe she also killed her father Parker Kaiser and first husband James Taylor and attempted to murder Dwight Moore. But still, there's one question that cannot be answered. Motive. Why did Blanche commit these heinous crimes? Was it simply for money or was it some form of psychosis? Perhaps it was part of a deeper calculated plan. Blanche, who claims to have suffered so badly at the hands of her father and his friends during childhood, may have been inspired by a deep-rooted hatred. It's possible that her crimes were motivated by a twisted desire to punish all men. No one except Blanche will ever know. As she spends her twilight years in jail, it's likely that she'll take the secret with her to the grave, leaving her haunting mark on North Carolina as its infamous Black Widow. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Eliza Fenning, a young house servant in 19th century London. When the family she works for become the victims of poisoning, Eliza finds herself thrust into the spotlight. Who better place to tamper with their food than the cook who made it? For some, it's an open and shut case. Others claim she's a scapegoat and a victim of class prejudice. A young girl sacrificed to serve as an example to deter other servants from harming their masters, while the real killer walks free. Could the young cook truly be capable of trying to murder a whole family? And why would she do such a thing? A deathbed confession made years after the poisoning claims to have the answers.
Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 